Director's Commentary, The Sheridan Monkhouse Collection. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening. Whatever time it is, it's your choice. My name's Sheridan Monkhouse, Director of Interceptors 3. I've got a large glass of excellent whiskey and I've got a fine cigar. I'd suggest you do the same, unless you're a lady. Or even if you are a lady, who am I to judge? But lady or not. You're listening to the director's commentary on the new remastered 4K edition of Interceptors 3, or the abridged podcast version that someone thought would be a good idea. Either way, it's the Interceptors, it's Henge Masterson, it's Sheridan Monkhouse, so strap in for an outstanding slice of classic 90s action. Alright, titles. Titles are everything in films. Well, they're not. Obviously, the film is everything in films, but titles are incredibly important. Get the titles wrong and people are going to walk straight out of the theatre. Like the time I used Basement Jack's outstanding disco record, Where's Your Head At?, for my Mark Bolan movie. We got the titles wrong. We didn't get the titles wrong here. Music. Now, Interceptors is a classic action film. You think action, you think rock music. You think rock music, you think guitar solo. So I thought... Why bother with the music? We just need a guitar solo. Then I thought, is a guitar solo enough? No. So, if we just wait here... Bang! Second guitar solo comes in. Because a guitar solo is action, then two guitar solos is action times two. But really, why stop there? I mean, who says that two guitar solos is enough? So a third one comes in, then a fourth... And it's just guitar solo on guitar solo, and it's just, yes, this is action. So we've got a guitar solos going, and then, boom, here we go. Title, interceptors, granite typeface, and here, we've got blood pouring down the letters before, bang, three, right there in the centre of the screen. It's molten, it's hot, you can feel the danger, and then... Outstanding. The whole thing just blows up. Big, big title sequence. Four guitar solos and then the name of the film absolutely blowing the hell up in front of you. Monumental. Okay, so more titles, 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 guitar solos, silhouettes, topless girl, titles, bad guy getting killed... Second bad guy getting impaled on first bad guy. Third bad guy torn in two and then they all explode. Titles, bit more silhouetted topless girl. Incredible crescendo of four different guitar solos. And we're into the film. Now some guys, they go for a big action opening here. Exploding tank battle, shark attack, jousting competition... But I'm not other guys. I'm, I wanted to do something different. You see, I've got nothing to prove here. Millions of young men and older boys love the Interceptors. Not in a romantic way, obviously. But they've been with us for two movies. So I could afford to do something different. To get a little experimental. We all know a Henge Masterson. We all know the Interceptors. They've saved the world from an insane Pope in the first film and from an artificial Russian meteor infected with plague in the second. So I thought it would be interesting to show a different side of Henge, because, yes, he's an interceptor. He's the interceptor. But he's also a human man. 
By doing this, we, we wrong-foot the audience, subvert their expectations. It's a little bit Hitchcock. And I suspect that if Hitch ever made an Interceptors film, he'd take a similar approach. Sadly, the great man is dead, so it's unlikely we'll ever get to see what a Hitchcock Interceptors film would look like. Great, great shame. Anyway, I wanted to show Henge just leading his normal life. I had some nice ideas here. I could show him climbing a mountain, or shoeing a horse, or forging an axe. Something that shows that he's more than just an interceptor. Eventually, though, I settled on him restoring a steam train. It just gives him depth, character. He's not just a tough guy who can save the world from both bad popes and plague-infected Russian meteors, but also he's a steam enthusiast. So you've gone from this huge title sequence with explosions and guitar solos and topless girls in silhouette and guys getting impaled on other guys and then blowing up to this simple, reflective moment of just a man. A man quietly restoring a steam train. In that moment, Henge becomes someone that anyone can relate to. Incidentally, this was 93. The Interceptors was an established franchise by then, but when we did the first Interceptors movie in, what, 87? Everyone wanted to be Henge Masterson. It was a big, big role in town, and everyone wanted it. We considered everyone. Bruce, Arnold, Sly, Merrill. But none of them worked. I'll be honest, I was getting desperate, and I was prepared to try literally anyone. So I was just about to get on the phone to Dolph when I saw this kid. He was just... Okay, so I don't know what happened. I've never asked. But there was this old lady. I don't know what an old lady was doing on the studio lot. It was the 80s. Who knows? Anyway, there's this old lady. And the kid, he didn't see her. Or something. And just, bang! He's walked into her and just sent her flying. He's a big guy. He'd knock anyone flying. So he rushes over to her. And he's angry. Hey, you! You shouldn't be on the lot, you old lady. I mean, he's mad. But then, and this fascinated me, he picked her up very tenderly, and he carried her to the exit. And then he gave her his ham sandwich. It was a combination of danger and compassion that simply was Henge Masterson. That was Lewis Undertown, and the rest is history. Now this is an outstanding scene. Again, we know who the Interceptors are by now. We know that Mully is a grizzled old Navy guy who saw underwater action in Vietnam, Korea and the Falklands. And we know that Silent Juan is... Well, we don't know anything about Silent Juan. That's the point. He's an enigma, a Euro mystery. But we know the Interceptors. There's no backstory needed, which is what makes this scene so powerful. It's just a very pure moment of camaraderie. We've got Henge just out in his backyard working on his steam train and he looks up and sees Molly and Silent Juan looking through the kitchen window. They don't need to say anything, just this look. There it is, there, that look. That's all they need, no words. Damn, I love that look, outstanding work. And they said Lewis couldn't act, that's acting, right there. With just one look, Henge knows that the Interceptors have got a job to do. He picks up his father's ceremonial spear and they go to work. It wasn't my intention for the spear to become Henge's signature weapon, but the story of his father being gifted the spear by an ancient African tribe that he helped free from oppression 
It really resounded with people in the first picture. I still see Lewis a lot. We talk about the old times, about the Interceptors films. Outstanding man. Shame he never became the big star we all thought he would. But I tell you what, the guy can unblock a toilet like no one I've ever seen. So, you know, they can't take that away from him. Okay, so we're in the Interceptors basin. I love this. I mean, people say to me, Sheridan, the Interceptors movies are classic. I say, yes, I know, they bought me a boat. But then they say that they're not that funny. Well, I beg to differ. There are some very funny moments in the Interceptors films, but it's sometimes quite subtle. The Chief here is a perfect example of this sort of subtle humour that we play with. Yes, the Interceptors movies are primarily action, but, oh, here we go. This is some outstanding humour as the chief walks in and she's walking and she's walking and there falls right on her backside. Now that is hilarious. You see, having this comedy gives the film the sort of depth that's made them endure. The chief is an interesting one because the studio, when we did the first film, they were very much anti the chief being a woman. You know, a woman? In charge of this tough, elite squad of guys? That's just crazy. But I made a stand on this. It was the 80s. Women, they could be bosses. Maggie Thatcher. And there were probably some others as well. Also, I wanted to have a woman fall on her backside. Because that's truly subversive. You put a woman in a film and everyone respects her and... What's that? That's patronising. And I don't want anyone saying that Sheridan Monkhouse patronises women. So you make the woman the boss and have her fall on her backside? That's real. That's not patronising. That's feminism. Outstanding legs, too. So, we've got our three interceptors back together and they've got a job to do. This was an interesting setup for Interceptors 3. I mean... We'd done an insane pope, which some people considered a little obvious. Then we had the Russian plague-infected meteor that Silent Juan destroyed by using an organic computer virus to change its trajectory. Many people said that was a stupid way to deal with a meteor. Those people shut up when Armageddon came out, I can tell you that. So where do we go from here? What can possibly give the Interceptors the real dramatic challenge that it needs as the third film in the series? One word. Massive Dragon. I was out on my yacht somewhere in the Caribbean, just getting away from it all. Jerry's there. Outstanding man, Jerry. Scripted all the Interceptors movies. 22 Stone existed solely on creme de menthe and cocaine. Died in a hotel room in Mumbai in, what? 04, 05. I miss him. But towards the end he was convinced that he was a descendant of the Romanovs and wanted to re-establish the Russian monarchy, so he was difficult to talk to. Anyway, we're on the yacht, and we're kicking around a few Interceptors' ideas. Giant eel attack, cannibal Belgians, angry genie. But nothing was really sticking. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Tommy and Nicole are there, and they want to come on board and hang out. So we do the only thing we can, switch off all the lights and hide under the table. Now, Tom Cruise, absolutely outstanding man, but he freaks me the hell out. So we're there, we're hiding in the dark for a good two hours because 
Well, you don't get to be as big a star as Tommy is on that level of acting ability without a tremendous amount of persistence. Anyway, they finally go, and slowly we come out from under the table and we're creaking and aching, and as the light touches Jerry's face, it's like he's been touched by inspiration from God himself. And he just looks at me and goes, Jerry, the new Interceptors movie? I go, yeah. And he goes, huge dragon. That was it. That was Jerry. That was all he needed to say. Huge dragon. Bang. We had a movie. So we're off now. And, oh yes, this is another outstanding scene. New York, dawn, the sun silhouettes the interceptors as they speed across the bay on a powerboat. Henge is there with his top off and his leg up on the side of the boat. Silent Juan, looking across the bay, just thinking his enigmatic thoughts. And Molly, softly dozing. It was a hero shot. Perfect for the trailer. Really helped sell the movie. We borrowed the powerboat from Angela Lansbury. People don't know this about Angie, but she's crazy for a powerboat. Got four now, I think. The Interceptors are heading into New York to track down a dragon. That was the genius of Jerry. The obvious thing here would be to make a typical rogue vigilante commando squad versus dragon movie. But Jerry, boom, he puts it right smack in the inner city, which gives it a, a richness that... I mean, we were tackling some tough inner city questions. Crime, drug addiction, single parents, dragons. We were breaking the mould. This was, what, ten years before The Wire? Now, I'm not saying that without The Interceptors 3, there wouldn't be The Wire. That's for other people to judge. Classic Interceptors work here. Silent Juan tracking the dragon through the rough back streets of the city. Oh, there we go. Couple of kids doing breakdancing in the background. Now, this is important. You see, on a conscious level, you probably aren't going to see that detail. I mean, you're watching Silent Juan use his innate, almost mystical Spanish tracking skills. You're not going to suddenly go, yes, outstanding breakdancing there. But even though you aren't noticing it, your subconscious is noticing it. So even though you don't really know why, you're seeing this sequence of a man tracking a dragon through the streets of New York as an incredibly authentic, vital, inner-city moment. Purely because we've got a couple of kids in the background doing some breakdancing. Now, we're ramping up the tension here. Lots of quick cuts. Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Bang! There it is. Dragon! Or was it? This is great. It's misdirection. Because you know they're looking for a dragon. And you see a massive blast of flame. You immediately think, dragon. But no. Actually, we see it's just an exploding car. Which may seem crazy to us now. But on the streets of New York in the early 90s was probably a very common sight. It's also a marvellously effective way to introduce the gang leader, Marius D. It's become a tradition in the movies that, if we're introducing a new character, then we always do so with the backdrop of an explosion. It's just a thing we do. For the role of Marius D, we got Jimmy Rumble. He'd been in classic boy band Crash the Party. He was the quiet one who stood at the back before occasionally rapping a few lines towards the end of the song. Jimmy Rumble. Great name, great performer. Sadly, his movie career never took off like it should. He works with Lewis now. Does outstanding grouting. Now, this is very impressive. 
The sun's rising over a grubby New York, and as it does so, it gives Marius D. this halo effect. Only briefly, but it's another example of the subliminal suggestions you can make in films. The audience immediately sees Marius D. and thinks, gang leader, therefore bad guy. But what we're doing here is subverting that expectation. The halo effect is unsettling you. And then, bang, Marius D. goes, are you the interceptors? incredible twist he's the gang leader but he's the one who actually called the interceptors it's like the authorities they're doing nothing they're uptown with their cigars and their lobster and their corruption they don't have to put up with the dragon but down here down on the streets it's the people it's marius d's people who are getting burnt or singed on a daily basis we do a lot of storytelling without words in the Interceptors films, and none more so than here. Henge looks up at Marius D and the sun moves behind a building. You can feel the spark between them. It's immediate. An unspoken bond is forged. It's not sexual. It's about respect between men. Again, without a single word, we know that there is a camaraderie here between these two men that is timeless. You know, in Germany in the 20s, the films were still silent then, and the goal amongst these incredible giants of early cinema, Stroheim, Murnau, was to create a film without any title cards, no words. I like to think we came close to that with some Interceptors films. So, we're in Marius D's camp now. Some incredible set work here. We're in the centre of downtown New York, and we've gone for a real post-apocalyptic Thunderdome feel, because that's what it was like back then. There's tyres on fire, kids in furry loincloths, someone's playing darts with knives. There's a rat on a spit. It was a hard life in the city for these people. They shouldn't have to put up with dragons as well. Big action stuff here. The Interceptors, with the help of Marius D, have tracked the dragon into the heart of Central Park after it launched a largely unprovoked attack on a school. So the Interceptors are about to head into the park to confront it, when out of the dark come policemen. Hundreds of New York policemen. Henge tells them to stand aside. He's going to kill a dragon. But the police chief refuses. Great line this. It's my town, and I say there's no damn dragon in that park. He knows there is a dragon. He just doesn't give a damn. It's a line that reveals the shocking and malignant corruption rife at the heart of powerful men like this which is why Henge stabs him up the balls with his ceremonial spear. Now we've got an outstanding fight scene, and for all of the clever intellectual touches we put in the Interceptors movies, this is why people love them. This is definitely one of our best. We had about 150 guys going at it for five days straight to get everything we needed. No fatalities, which is always good, and only one maiming. Australian guy, lost an eye. Finished the scene though, outstanding man went straight to the hospital, and then was in the pub with everyone at the end of the day shoot. Had his eye in a jam jar. Outstanding. Shame we couldn't pay him anything, but if the contract says you have to finish the shoot to be eligible for the agreed fee, then legally our hands are tied. So, 20 minutes of men, fighting, like men do. Towards the end here we have a nice moment. The police chief calls Henge over because he's seen him fighting and he respects him, you know? As a fellow warrior. His blood's running out of his balls, and he's dying, badly. So in his last moments, he wants to shed the corruption that's enveloped him and do something decent, something good. 
So he tells Henge that the dragon is in the park, and he should get the dragon. Do it for me, and what used to be my town. Powerful stuff. We linger on Henge as he just holds the police chief's hand and offers him comfort in his last moment. It's who Henge is. Yes, he stabbed the chief up the balls with a ceremonial spear, but the battle is over, and now they're just two men. One, watching the other, bleed out of his balls. Now this is very interesting, because this actually isn't Central Park. I know, incredible. See, the New York authorities were funny about seeing mass battles between civilians and police going on in this iconic space. So we ended up having to build a life-size recreation of Central Park in Putnam County, just outside New York. It was incredibly detailed, down to the last shrub and pile of dog mess. Incredible feat. Cost two and a half million, and we had to completely decimate a forest in New England to recreate the copses. But I think it's worth it. It really is breathtakingly authentic. Bang! Dragon! Ha! You see? Now that's really using rhythm to mess with your expectations. We had the big battle scene, and you as an audience expect respite now. What you don't expect is to see a huge dragon roar out of Central Park and launch into the interceptors. Some people have asked me about this. Sheridan, they say. I love Interceptors 3, and I say, thank you very much, because, quite simply, I love the fans. But some other people ask, Sheridan, why did the dragon go after the Interceptors like that? They'd done nothing to threaten it, so why go straight for them? Ha! That's Interceptors fans, always thinking. You see, dragons are, to the best of our knowledge, fictional. So, there is very little we can do to find out how intelligent they really are. This gives me, as a filmmaker, license to use my imagination to grant the dragon a basic intelligence, an instinct, that recognises on an internal, dragony level that the interceptors are a threat. Most people ponder, smile, and tell me that this is why I'm such a great filmmaker. I just tell them that they're probably great at whatever it is they do as well. There are some, though, who are more difficult, and they say, well... By that argument, you could just make the dragon have psychic powers and shoot lasers out of its face. I don't even answer them. I mean, who ever heard of a dragon that can shoot lasers out of his face? That's just stupid. The Interceptors have been forced to retreat. What? The Interceptors retreat from something? Two reasons. One, drama raises the stakes. Is this dragon going to do what an insane pope and a plague-infested Russian meteor couldn't and actually defeat them? And two, they've just had a huge battle with the New York City Police Department. You are never going to be in a position to take on a dragon after a battle with the New York City Police Department. That's just basic common sense. Now, this is possibly my favourite sequence in the film. The Interceptors and Marius D's people racing back to his camp. It's an exciting, kinetic frenzy of tired men running, helping each other, but with just snatches of the real New York. A prostitute injecting drugs, a man being mugged, a little kid graffitiing a train, and an old man with a tear in his eyes looking at what's become of the city he loved. Now, I love the Italian neorealists, Bicycle Thieves, Rossellini's work, and I think you can really see influences of that great period in this sequence, in the way that I... Whoa! See how the dragon just burns that guy to a crisp? Outstanding. 
So, back at the camp and we've got a real interesting dilemma. There's not enough of them to take on the dragon, even with Marius D's gang. So there's only one thing for them to do now. Marius D is going to have to forge a truce with his hated rival, Furious James. Now, Furious James and Marius D used to be friends, but Furious James cheated Marius D in a rap battle. You know, this kills me. People say that the Interceptors movies have no plot. No plot! One man has to make peace with the man who cheated him in a rap battle, or a dragon will just kill them all. That's a plot. That's Shakespeare. That's opera. That's the sort of drama that everyone faces every day in their lives. Well, maybe not exactly, but definitely metaphorically. So now we get to it. In many ways, this is the heart of the film. The summit between these two mortal enemies. We'd originally planned a big dialogue sequence here. Two titans locked in a battle of words as lifetimes of accusation, recrimination and hatred pour out of either man. Jerry had prepared 15 to 20 minutes of just stunning dialogue that would have genuinely tested both actor and audience. But in the end, we thought it would just be better if Marius D punches Furious James in the face. So, bang! There you go. But after knocking him to the floor, Marius offers his hand to help him up, and an alliance is born. Outstanding stuff. Jerry went nuts when we didn't use his scene, but unfortunately, that's the movies for you. It didn't help that he'd been on a four-day creme de month jag and had written the entire thing in iambic pentameter. So here we are. The big climax to the movie. The battle between the dragon and the people of New York. And this was really important to me, to show that it was the people of this great city that walked into battle the dragon. It wasn't the army or the authorities, it was people, real people. And I guess, more than anything, Interceptors 3 is a film about the things ordinary people can do if they work together, like defeating a dragon. To emphasise this, I showed the Interceptors, along with the two gangs of Marius D and Furious James, walk back to Central Park, to the Dragon's Lair. And as they do, here, we see it, just here, ordinary New Yorkers see these brave men going into battle for their town, and they join them. They don't know how to fight, they don't know if they'll be effectual, but damn it, it's their city and they're going to defend it. It's a monumental sequence to see... Ordinary New Yorkers stop shouting abuse at each other and follow the Interceptors to do what needs doing. Breathtaking. Now, this battle with the dragon is, well, I'm not sure what I can say. It's recognised as one of the most effective and influential scenes of all time. It was a mixture of animatronics and early computer animation. We were picking up stuff that Jimmy Cameron was doing with the Abyss and the Terminator movie. Outstanding man, Jim. Tough, but a genius used to hire a young actor purely to be his footstool for the duration of a shoot. People said that was unnecessary, but I don't know. Christian Slater went from being Jimmy's footstool to Heather's, so I don't think he's got any complaints. It was some incredible work done by the effects guys. I had one guy, big star, I'm not going to say who it was because, well, I'm just not. He came up to me at a party and went, Sherry, that dragon, is it real? I mean, he was convinced that's how good it was. I told him it was just good effects work, and he actually went on to recommend our guys for Waterworld, which he was just starting work on. So we have this epic battle with the dragon, 
We've got rain coming down. It's very Kurosawa, very Ran. We've got these hundreds of people just charging at the dragon. It's a genuinely epic battle. If there was a Guinness Book of World Records entry for biggest on-screen battle with a dragon, then we'd pretty much have had it sewn up until the Hobbit films. I wonder why there isn't. I mean, you can get in that book for not cutting your nails. But orchestrate a complex battle with a dragon and they're not interested. Doesn't seem right. However, no matter how big the battle, in the end, this is an Interceptors movie. It's a Henge Masterson movie. And so it had to be his triumph against the dragon. So we trigger that with the death of Furious James. Henge looks around and sees his body and just lets out this primal roar that silences the battlefield. Say what you like about Lewis, but he could really sell a primal roar. Not many actors can. Ever see Bruce Willis try to do a primal roar? Poor. So there's silence. Henge and the dragon just staring each other down. The only sound is the rain. Like I say, Kurosawa. Henge starts walking slowly towards the dragon, and then breaks into a trot, and then a full sprint. As he launches himself at the dragon, Mully tosses him his ceremonial spear. Henge catches it mid-air, which gives the whole sequence an almost balletic quality. And then he brings the spear down into the dragon's eye, through its brain, and out the back of its skull. The nightmare is over. The dragon is dead. Thanks to Henge Masterson and the Interceptors. People ask me what I'm most proud of about Interceptors 3. I say all of it. But if pressed, I say the character of Marius D. It was a positive portrayal of a young black man taking responsibility to help rid his town of a dragon. Now, I've never met the man, so I don't know. But I often wonder if a young Barack Obama watched Interceptors 3, saw Marius D and thought to himself, Yes, I can. Director's Commentary, the Sheridan Monkhouse Collection. An off-target production by Neil Tolfrey. Hellmare was always a combination of hell and nightmare, which is literally the most frightening thing imaginable.